and welcome to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand. I'm Mary Nightingale. Today I'm with Pitt Black and Joan Murphy, co-founders of Frame, the fitness studio chain that disrupted the market, making keeping fit fun rather than a chore. Founded in 2009, the business now has seven studios in Shoreditch, King's Cross, Victoria, Fitzrovia, Hammersmith, Farringdon and Angel. Every month sees 65,000 bookings, 6,000 sessions made up of 35 different types of class and 23,000 customers or framers as they are known, taught by a team of more than 280 instructors. So welcome Joan and Pip. Hi. Hey. I'm just reading those numbers. It makes me feel exhausted already. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? This whole idea of making fitness fun rather than a chore. Because to me, I think fitness is a necessary evil rather than a pleasure. But evidently, I'm, I've got it wrong. So I think sometimes if we say fun, that word can have some quite twee connotations. But we really believe that fitness makes you feel good. So if you're doing the right kind of exercise that you enjoy and that gives you those endorphins makes you buzzing afterwards then generally it becomes something that you enjoy doing that you feel the benefits and you make better choices afterwards so we make sure that our classes are enjoyable there's never going to be a sort of sergeant major shouting at you telling you to do more it's always about being motivating encouraging often using music to do that, giving the customer a huge opportunity in terms of the variety of different classes so that they can find something that works for them. Okay. So some people love dancing, some people would rather do a lovely slow yoga class. Okay, so it's not one size fits all, but Joan, 35 different classes that you offer, I can't think of 35 different ways of doing keep fit. I mean, music and so on, I explain. Yeah, so I think back in 08 when Pip and I first came up with um, the idea of Frame, you kind of had your what we call a big box gym, so your standard gyms. You had maybe tiny Pilates studio, which were far, far too expensive for us as, you know, mid-20s. And there was the odd yoga studio. So the premise behind Frame was really to put everything under one roof. And we are a fairly female-centric brand. So as females, we like to change our mind, pick and choose. And so we thought, well, actually, if we put these different classes under one roof, then we'd create something that you could fit into whatever you fancied at the time. So today you might feel like punching a boxing bag. Tomorrow you might want to have a dance with your friends. Or you, like Pip said, you might want to do a yoga class. So the idea behind that is you break it into, into areas. So yoga is not about fads. Grounded in yoga, years, you know, centuries old, as is Pilates. So, what we try and do is have the best of each genre. And then, as Pip said, we try and make it enjoyable and fun as opposed to a chore. I think when you go back again to, to that time when we met 12 years ago now, there were a lot of gyms out there, but everything at that time was very negative when you thought about exercise in general, especially if you're a female. It was all about exercising because you felt guilty, because you felt you had to do it. Maybe you'd eaten too much, you drank too much wine, and therefore you had to go to the gym and punish yourself. So we had this very sort of negative attitude towards fitness, whereas working in advertising at lunchtime, all the guys would just put on some shorts, go next door, run around, have a beer, come back, and it wasn't a big deal. So for us at that point, we both had played top level sport growing up and we'd been used to moving all our lives and then had found ourselves in London working in advertising, 
working very long hours, um, but also partying really hard because that's what you did back in those days. Um, and generally just not feeling so great. So from a very personal need, there really wasn't anything that we wanted to go to. So we tried a few options, but again, nothing was fun. Everything was very serious. It doesn't need to be your life. It's something that if you do it in the right way, it will help to make sure that the rest of your life can be more positive and, and you can achieve better things because you're feeling in the right headspace. And very much we came from outside of the industry. So I guess that's a real positive when you're trying to disrupt a market. So we never had any ideas of how it should be done. But for us, we were looking at other industries and we were like, well, we can pay as we go for things like the tube or our mobile phones. How do we bring that over into the fitness industry? Because back then, again, it was still sign up for your 12 months. Why couldn't we go online and, and book a class that we wanted to do that day or the next day rather than having to always plan for weeks in advance? So looking at our needs and thinking that all of our sort of friendship groups and people that we were aware were also starting to interact with different sort of products and services in those ways we were like there's got to be a way to make this fitness industry better okay how did you meet joan it was a whirlwind romance um so as you can probably tell i'm from new zealand and pip's british and at the time pip was living in brixton with a bunch of kiwis and aussies because if anyone's in london they understand that we all congregate together in the same house <laughs> and um pip had been living in australia and we ended up on a surfing holiday in cornwall and we were out surfing in easter which I think I've got a bit soft now I've lived here. I don't know if I'll be getting out there at Easter time. Um, and we just hit it off. And then over the next six weeks, we kind of forged a friendship. And then we sort of spoke about this initial idea about wanting to find something more. And we'd both had this sporty upbringing. We both have um, business degrees. I did finance and marketing and Pip did business. Um, so we kind of had sort of parallel lives, to be honest, within... Was it three months? I think two months. Two months, yep. Pip quit her job and we shared my wage because at the time I was earning more than Pip was and she pedaled that bike around London to find our first site because we realised that actually sitting at our desks we weren't going to be able to find a site. So it was a real snowball effect to be honest. So kind of as we as we researched, as we went around looking for properties, seeing what the, what the options were and then from there we kind of steamrolled ahead optimistic all the way it's incredible that you had that you had I mean a lot of people yeah maybe <laughs> and 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 I do want to talk to you about that because a lot of people have ideas yeah but I don't think that many people actually act upon them and not quite that quickly so I want to talk about that more in a minute but tell me a little bit more about your background in sport because Pip you played hockey at a very high level didn't you so I played hockey, netball, tennis I used to run I did a lot of dancing as well and hockey for England though is that not yeah. right yeah yeah not very modest. Jones way more impressive, though. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean, I personally did anything I could do to get out of school. So triathlons, swimming, football. Did you, both of you feel a bit constrained by this working life in London? I think so. I, I found it really difficult not being able to play team sports because I'd done that all my life. But in order to do that, you had to commit to training. So you'd have to be at a certain place probably by 7pm latest two nights a week and then your whole weekend was spent travelling around the country and um, playing matches. So I actually took up triathlon. When I met Joan, um, <laughs> I was I was preparing for the London triathlon. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even own a bike. But um, Joan and her housemate at the time helped me through that. But I think that was part of the process as well of 
thinking, actually, I'm doing this, but I don't really enjoy it. I'm by myself running around London very early in the morning because I don't know what else to do. I think there's that old cliche that you hear, I don't know, both Pip and I are massive fans of podcasts to to learn because I think we were so young when we started Frame. We were like 26, so we didn't have a wealth of experience behind us. So, you know, learning through other people is, is so important. And it's the cliche that we kind of started something that we wanted ourselves. You know, you want to go somewhere that you belong, you know, a modern day cheers where everyone knows your name or the teacher's going to speak directly to you because when you go to the gym, you've got your headphones on, you tap in through some turnstile gates, there's a good chance no one will say anything to you. So it's all of those sort of touch points and experiences, which is, you know, London can be a sort of big lonely place for people. People come, they don't know anyone, but they're coming for a career, they're coming for new experiences. So not only is Frame about giving someone the opportunity to move, it's really that sense of belonging, you know, that extra bit of um, social um, and community. So we really found that 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 was a big part in the early days. Our first site was in Shoreditch. Could have been a probably wealthier area that we could have chosen. You Did know, you to choose get people. it because it was cheap at that point? We chose it because we understood the area. There was a lot of creatives there. We were working in marketing and advertising. That's where a lot of the agencies were moving to. We knew the type of people there. So knowing your audience is such, such a big part of it. And we wanted to tap into an area of an industry which were not the people who were already gym goers. We wanted to tap into an area of, of new. We wanted people who didn't exercise. We wanted people to come with a fresh mindset. And I think 10 years later, it's the same. You know, you've got to know your audience. Each site is different. Just a slight tweak, but you know you need to know your customer. And I think with Shoreditch, we knew the person and we knew who we were going for. And I think that's the thing with Frame is we're always looking for people to start their fitness journey at Frame. They may be coming for the community and social side. You know, we opened in 2009, five months after the recession started, which was an interesting time. But actually, it turned out that we were a bit of a haven for people who had been made redundant. So people would come and they would sign up to an all-month membership and come all the time and they would sit around the big table and they would make friends and they would talk about, OK, I'm going to do this class and then I'm going to apply for jobs. And so it was interesting, like, the community element that came in that early doors that you wouldn't see in a normal gym. You hit upon something that really worked. You know, Piper's 71770 inflection points. You are precisely at the seven point with your seven studios, aren't you? Tell me a little bit more about those early years. It was very much Joan and I doing everything. We used to split the front of house and teaching. So one of us would be on reception from 6am and the other person would teach and then after lunch we would switch over um, and the other person would go onto the desk and somehow in amongst all of that we would do our finances, our marketing, um, the operational side of things, fix everything that was breaking. So it was quite intense for those first, I say, four or five years where, where this was the situation before we really started to build the team. About a year in, maybe a little less, we realised we needed to to hire our first sort of official staff member. So we got Joan's sister in. Because <laughs> we knew she really told threw her. The net wide, but. <laughs> yeah. um, and Helen Helen was really process driven and helped us to, to put some of those things into place. We'd actually taken a bank loan, which now you know doesn't seem to be an option if you're a startup really. Um, but we'd managed to get that just before the crash. How much um, did how much did you have to borrow, can you remember? 
90,000. Was that a worry? Do you remember feeling stressed about that? Terrified. Really? Yeah. But also, we had nothing to lose. We didn't, you know, have families. If it went wrong, it wasn't the end of the world, although my mum would have disagreed with me at that time. We took um, we took the money from the bank and we actually, something again, um, Joan comes from an on, um, entrepreneurial background, so her dad said to us right at the beginning, cash is king, know your cash flow, and we literally like counted money like daily so that we knew that we had enough to pay all of our instructors and to pay our rents and pay everything else that needed to pay. And so as part of that, we paid back our bank loan. Um, and then as soon as we paid it back, we basically took another loan for exactly the same amount of money much harder second time round um, because obviously the financial situation in the country um, and then with that money we opened our second site tell me about the choice of queen's park because shoreditch you said you understood and they were your people how did you identify that second site a number of reasons we knew that a lot of those people if they weren't living in Shoreditch, Dalston sort of area, they were living over Kensal Rise, Queen's Park. It seemed to be a sort of similar demographic. Back in those days, it was very, very hard for us to get property. The landlords hadn't quite cottoned on to the fact that having a fitness studio in their property could actually increase the value. It's seen as very much part of the infrastructure nowadays. Absolutely, yes. Now it is. But back then, this was sort of 2011, it, it wasn't. Mm. So we found, we found a a site in Queen's Park that we could get that usage on and that the landlord was happy for us to go for. In hindsight, that site actually doesn't exist anymore. We had to shut that early this year because the location wasn't quite right. But we both learned a huge, huge amount through... Through something that didn't work. Exactly. So So I wouldn't change it at all. It was hard work, but we learned a huge amount that then when we started opening the future sites, it, it sort of stood us in good stead. I want to pick you up on something you said in passing. You said, Joan's from a family of entrepreneurs and my mum was worried about us um, (laughs) borrowing the money, Pip, you said. So explain those different backgrounds. Pip, first of all. My mum was a teacher and I think actually she's potentially less risk taker Mm. um, and, you know, really wanted me to be an accountant. So when I got my first placement at uni at PwC, everything was like great when I decided to quit my job and set up a business with Joan. Not so great. But she quickly came round as soon as it started doing okay. Yeah, so I don't come from a natural entrepreneurial background. In fact, no one in my wider family has their own business. But my mum and dad both were those people that managed to fit so much stuff into their life. So they are doers and they pushed that onto me. So I grew up doing so many different things, whether it was sport or music or dancing, had a pony, like did everything. You were a grafter. Um, I was a grafter. (laughs) So that kind of always put me in a situation where I guess I got really hard work and also Mm. taking opportunities and sort of making stuff happen. I definitely got work ethic, yeah. Joan, you are from a family of entrepreneurs and you were saying your dad was saying cash is king. So explain what that spirit of entrepreneurship was like in your family. I'm one of six kids and there's only one that doesn't have their own business and my parents own their own business together and my sister, the one who came and sorted us out with processes at the beginning, she works in HR. So (laughs) I think um, I just come from a family where we all got stuck in and I think that kind of side of it really, really helps. While we're very, Pip and I are very different, we're very similar in our approach. If you say you're going to do something, you do something, you don't let the other party down and I think that some of my friends with businesses have come unstuck where work ethics may be different or the purpose has maybe been lost and I think that's something that's put us in really good stead. 
You're listening to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand. And today I'm with Pitt Black and Joan Murphy of Frame. Do you join? You don't join Frame, do you? Just People, yeah, they join. So once, once somebody comes along... They, they've joined? They're a framer, yeah. You don't sign have to pay up no, and exactly. join in a sort of traditional way of, no. of saying Paying you're going to come for and, the next and 12 months. Yeah. But yeah. you can. Some people do. We're very consumer-centric as a brand. So rather than being like, oh, this would be a nice, easy way to do it because there's software out there that allows you to do that, we looked at it from a consumer perspective. So we knew that people might just want to drop in. And that happens quite a lot. Even people that are regulars, they still don't want to commit, so they just pay per class. Then we have our frame card, which is almost what we took from the Oyster card. And that is very unique to what we do. But what it allows us to do is to price our classes at different amounts. So a reformer Pilates class, which might have a maximum of 10 people in there, and very sort of bespoke equipment, highly trained instructors, those classes, they cost more than, say, a 30-minute quickie butts class which is maybe you have 25, 30 people in the room and it's only 30 minutes and the equipment required is sort of minimal. So we're, we're able to sort of flex our pricing and we've had to build the technology behind that. And then we have memberships as well. And when we started, it was very much this pay-as-you-go side of the business and we didn't want to you know, offer the memberships because we were trying to disrupt and do things differently. However, Again, because of how the fitness industry has changed, and I'd like to think that hopefully we've had played quite a big part in that, that people now do want to come every single day, um, sometimes twice a day, occasionally four times a day. <laughs> really? Some, oh, yeah. <laughs> There's some people wow. that come, come to frame a lot, which is amazing. They would sign up to a membership because it means that it suddenly does become affordable to, to come that often. Okay. I want to take you back to those very early years because one of the themes I think that emerges with the entrepreneurs I speak to is that they say that they didn't know what they didn't know in, in, in the very beginning of their businesses. And if they had known what they know now, you know, it, it might have changed their attitude and might have frightened them off. Do you, do you think there was an advantage in, in having a certain amount of naivety? 100%. We always say we did like an MBA on the job. We did everything at the start and we hadn't worked in, in the gym industry. So that was a plus because there is a real formula to the gym industry that we didn't want to subscribe to. But yeah, we definitely think that that, you know, raising a bank loan, we don't overly think it through. Mm. I mean, we had a 62 page business plan. So we say that we bored them to death, basically. Can you imagine giving someone a 62-page vision plan these days? But I think that was our thought process, wasn't it? It was like we put everything down there. So we, I think we proved to them that we had thought everything through, yeah. but we didn't have the experience. What big mistakes did you make? I mean, Queen's Park didn't work for whatever reason, but would you mind kind of dissecting what went wrong with that particular one? The market didn't really take off till... 2015 was when it really started to open and people started to get more choice. So Queen's Park was never bad, it just never took off. If we're talking specifically the Queen's Park situation, I think it was very residential. So one thing, again, that we've learned and that we've put into place post-Queen's Park with our other sites is that we need to be close to high-volume public transport, hence King's Cross, Victoria, Shoreditch, <laughs> Fitzrovia. Hammersmith um, as Hammersmith, well. Hammersmith, yeah. yeah. So we're high-volume business. We're very different to a lot of the boutique fitness studios that people talk about, which tend to have one room where you maybe have maximum 20 people. 
In our larger sites, we have five studios. In Fitzrovia, you can have over 200 people doing classes at any one time. And then you've got another 200 people waiting to, to go in straight after. So it is high, high volume. You know, you talked about the, the volume of bookings we had. We just January just gone over 70,000 bookings in one month. We always see a, a hike up every January because you're suddenly attracting another sort of new cohort of, of framers. Um, Do they last? I mean, we measure something called a second booking rate. So we're trying to get people once they're in, we want them to come back in the way that I guess a membership almost like forces you to. That proves to us whether our, the experience of frame is up to scratch. So we're always aiming for a 50% uh, second booking rate. So of every two people that walk in, you want, you want another one to come back within those first 14 days. Because the traditional model of the gym used to be that you wanted someone to take out a membership and then ideally never come back again, wasn't it? I mean, it, with the whole economic basis of them was on the people who never, never came. They have a horrible term called waking the dead. So at a certain point, if you haven't been, they stop communicating with you because they hope your direct debit will just keep going. So they kind of try and get you to come back. And when you get to the point where you don't come back... They think, okay, so we're not going to put them back in the cycle. We're more likely to get them to cancel their membership if we contact them. So, so they wow. put you down. Don't Waking wake you. It. Don't wake the dead. You both started out doing the same thing, sharing very much 50-50, one of you doing reception, one of you teaching and vice versa. How have you divided your roles? How have your individual roles evolved? One thing you learn at your 7, 17 and 70, you know, the thing we're learning at 7 is you know, really having to make sure you've got that management in place. So dissecting roles, making sure you have the right structure underneath you would make it far, far more manageable. King's Cross and Victoria were 2015, 2016, and they opened six months apart. And so that kind of changed things quite a bit. We brought in uh, sort of a person who'd looked after the four sites and then... We alternated for the next couple of years being off. I've tended more towards the finance sort of side of the business and the property side and then headed more towards the marketing. We very much run everything in-house. So it's quite interesting when you talk to other businesses and they think, well, we outsource that part of our business. And actually there's so many moving parts within Frame. It's operate seven days a week. We've actually really struggled with outsourcing. So, for example, we do have a designer and we have our digital and we have everything in-house. Same with HR, you know, because it's it's such a big part of the business, the people. I've taken on more recently a more CEO role um, in terms of growing and expanding the business um, and also trying to bring in that next level of management underneath us. So I guess this comes into this podcast, you know, that, that magical seven and our, our plans to sort of go outside of London, you know, making sure that we are looking after the seven, making sure that they're on course. We've just literally hired a head of studios and their role is specifically to look after the current estate while we have a separate team ready to make sure that the pipeline is coming in. Then we also have a huge side of product and marketing, which Pip looks after. I've always tended towards the more brand side of things. So I've always been a bit of a, uh, I just love brands. I love thinking about the customer and what they want and how they would react to tone of voice, copy, um, design. We always thought that we could create an incredible brand that was very different from the other brands that were in the fitness industry. Define that brand then. What was different about it? It's about positive 
energy. It's about not taking yourself too seriously and it's about living a full, better life. So we always say it's got to fit into your life. So a lot of our competitors will talk about how you look, whether you have a six-pack or how strong you are, whether you can lift this or how fast you can run. A lot of it's performance-led, where we've always, from day one, been about creating a lifestyle brand. So we've always wanted to sit alongside fashion brands or drinks brands or food brands in terms of how people will think and interact with the brand. It's just something that they touch on every day within their life. A lot of fitness brands, it's all about failure and (laughs) and being judged and not being good enough, isn't it? And that isn't what you do. No, I mean, we try to be hugely inclusive. So we want everybody to feel welcome. So whenever anyone new starts at Frame, we do something called brand school. So I will go and talk to them for three hours about the vision and the why we're doing this and what we're trying to make people feel. And, you know, the first part is that people need to feel welcome and that they belong there and that there's something for them. I think that can be very judgmental when you go into different studios and it can be terrifying. Even I, someone that's used to exercising my whole life and I've obviously done thousands of fitness classes, I sometimes will go into a different a competitor's studio and be nervous, potentially because you don't know where the changing rooms are or you're not sure whether you're allowed to go into the studio before you've been called or where do you fill up your water bottle. So all of those things that can give someone quite a negative experience when they first walk into a building. Actually, we really think about how we can change that all into a positive, so making sure someone feels that they're welcome and that they know all those sort of basic fundamentals so then they can get on with enjoying the class. And there are no mean girls in your class? Because there were always mean girls in the classes that I went to when I was younger, you know, in the aerobics class and the Jane Fonda type class. There was a mean girl with tight abs who used to judge. I really believe that we don't have that and I think that comes from from the top. So Joan and I, we don't have that attitude. We've always been inclusive, positive people and we've hired people underneath us to teach the classes or to be on the front desk that are also have that mindset. So we have a huge amount of instructors. When we survey them, a lot of them don't work in other boutique fitness studios and potentially some of those superstars from other studios wouldn't work so well at Frame because we want people in that classroom who are motivating, who are inclusive, who make people feel great rather than necessarily kind of it all being about them. I think on that point, though, we always talk about front of house, anyone in the business and and the teachers, the three E's, energy, encouragement and enthusiasm. None of that is to do with how you look. It's all emotive and feeling. And I think to to Pip's point, you know, if, if an instructor spends time looking at themselves in the mirror, they're not right for frame. One of the big changes over the lifespan of Frame is is the huge influence of social media now and influencers. And that is something you seem to have consciously gone against. Yeah, well, actually, when we started Frame, there was no social media. Well, bar, you know, Facebook at the time. I remember starting our Instagram account probably about just before we launched our King's Cross studio. And, you know, it is it is a big part of our marketing mix and it's something that we use to, to talk to our customers. But it's not about what you look like. So we're trying to get people feeling in a way that makes them think, actually, no, I should go to frame and I'm going to feel better afterwards. But there is a huge problem at the moment and it has been going on for a couple of years of, of fitfluencers and people who 
look incredible. You know, someone who's six foot tall, I'm five foot one. I'm never going to look like that no matter how much I exercise. And I think there's this huge problem with setting false expectations of how you can look. And, you know, we've seen a lot of people getting into negative headspace because they're just looking at these stars on Instagram. Take it to another extreme pregnancy exercise has become something that you know we're hugely hugely passionate about however you have athletes who are posting pictures of what they're doing during their pregnancy which is absolutely not okay for somebody who has been very inactive prior to pregnancy to start doing but because they're not aware that that's not right they're just seeing on instagram and being like oh she's pregnant and she's doing a handstand so i'll get involved in that too or the pressure to pop back into shape afterwards and, and, and have a flat stomach and kind of weak too. I think that's actually a bigger problem because there's a lot more damage that you can do postnatally. And unfortunately, people focus on the pregnancy part. And actually, postnatally, as we all know, it's a struggle afterwards. We do have people who will turn up like four weeks after having a baby and want to come to class because they need the control in their life and they feel the pressure. And that comes from social media because previously people didn't see what other people were like. You might see the odd celebrity in a, in a magazine, but if you're sitting at home and you're feeding at 2am and you can scroll through thousands of images of women who have popped back into shape, well, no one pops back into shape if, you know, unless they're taking extreme measures. We've always been very vocal about never using models Never talking about calories, never talking about how you look, never comparing. And I think the only way that we've managed to do that in the studios is by the people that we hire. How do you find those people and how do you manage them, particularly as you grow? I think that's probably the hardest thing. If you ask me what the hardest thing in business is, it's people. It's a tricky business. So we do try and do a lot of internal promotion. I think the area we're focusing on a lot now is making sure that the training and development of those people internally brings them up to the right level. You are always going to make mistakes. Some people can interview very, very well. <laughs> and, you know, if it's, you know, everyone says it's a cliche, but, you know, hire slow, fire fast. The best way we manage to motivate people is we're very flexible with our working. We trust people. We give them responsibility and room to make mistakes because I guess that's how Pippa and I learnt. What's your staff retention like? Really high, actually. In terms of instructors, we outperform the market amazingly well. We do have a lot of people who work on contracts for, say, dance. So we have kind of a bit of an open door, revolving door policy where people go away on contracts and come back. Retention's not the issue for us often. It's um, about getting the right volume in. So we've had a real focus last year on how are we going to fill that pipeline of sites with the right level of instructors. So we've uh, launched a training academy so we have a, an accredited academy where people can come from the very beginning. So we call it your side hustle. You might be working in a job, but actually you'd really like to be in the fitness industry. The fitness industry's a hard world. You know, the hours are not overly social. So we've now got an academy to try and bring th people through. Um, and our next stage of growth, we want to go outside of London. So that's going to be a critical part for us in terms of making sure that we have the right instructors in the right areas. You've recently hired a chairman, haven't you? And that we must have. be an enormous change in the way you operate. How did you go about finding the right person? So the process for finding a chairman actually ended up taking a lot longer than we potentially thought it would. We actually now have the most amazing chairman. We have John Trahan, who within our industry is, you know, really well renowned. And 
not just because of what he's achieved from a professional perspective, but also he's just a really sound guy. And Joan and I love spending time with him. We spoke to a lot of people on the search for, for John, and a lot of them had, inc- well, all of them had incredible histories, careers, and could all have offered something to help grow frame. But John is right for this role because, A, he understands the industry, and actually at the next stage of growth, that is something that we need to start to understand better. He also has great experience with properties, so a property rollout, which is something that the next stage of growth really requires UK-wide, not just in London. And having someone there as a mentor, someone to bounce ideas off, someone who's done similar things in their past is really, really invaluable. Someone that does have more experience than us because, you know, we have learned on the job, so most of our experience is internally within frame. We kind of knew we had a model and we knew we were ready to roll out. I think it was right to wait to that point because we still had a lot of internal learning on the job to do to make sure that we knew exactly what was the model and and what it was that we were going to open on going. We took on two angels back in 2015, just before we opened King's Cross and Victoria. So two really great guys who were heavily involved in that stage of um, the business. So we opened those two sites and then we actually were ready and we'd, we'd sort of already found a couple of sites that we wanted to open. So for us at that point, it was very much like, we're ready, let's do this, let's go. And really the only way to do that was to take on a significant chunk of investment in order to, to move at the pace that we wanted to. So how did, what did you look for when you were looking for an investor? Key thing for us is to work with people that we enjoy working with, that we get on with and that we respect. Piper were one of 11 private equity or VC brands that we spoke to. Actually, I was 39 weeks pregnant when we pitched uh, to to all of these guys. I did five and then I went to the hospital and had a baby. Um, she leads so, me to it. Is that like, true? Yeah. Straight from the pitch to the hospital. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, dude, there's six more. She's like, I'm having a baby. Yeah. Oh, couldn't, right. couldn't stop her to come out. Um, a key inflection point exactly. happening right there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we pitched to 11. We actually got offers from nine. And then you sort of go to that point of you're like, who? Who do we want to work with? And for us, Piper were always sort of, we'd had a quite long relationship with them as we had with some other P houses, having coffees, etc. over the past couple of years. And we really liked this sort of added value piece that they bought. We loved the fact that they were a consumer facing brand sort of specialist, that they worked with other brands that we you know, knew and understood and could see what growth they had had and the successes that they had had. And that also that we trusted that they would allow us to make the right decisions for our framers. So one thing that we really didn't want to get to is that point of being told just you're purely like cut costs off the bottom line or just it's only that sort of that money. Obviously, it's super important, but we always are purpose led. We want to be making sure that we're creating an incredible experience for our framers that are coming through the door. And, you know, we believe that Piper also had that same attitude. If you create that amazing experience, the people come, that the money comes with it. We've never been shy to ask people who might know more than us. So having now access to a bunch of great people who have all incredible experiences in their different fields. So 
you know, when we're looking at our tech platforms, we have somebody that we can talk to who, you know, might be able to put us in touch with other people that can help. Conversely, if you're looking at properties, we have someone that can run some numbers and look at the postcode analysis because we don't, you know, we're still a reasonably small business in the, in the sort of scope of things. So having people that can help with that next stage of growth is a huge, huge importance. Mm. You're both, as previously discussed, ambitious, competitive achievers, grafters. What is the long-term goal? For both of us, it's about growth and expansion. And it is a bit addictive opening, that rush of adrenaline. You open something new and you see the people come and you see the feedback from people and how the emails that we get on on how it's changed people's lives or I don't want to move my job because it's not going to be near a frame. You know, that's the stuff that really keeps us going. Or you get an amazing email because... Um, and instructors walked someone to the train station because they weren't feeling well after class. You know, that's that's the part that really fills us with joy and, and the team. It's amazing to see them sort of grow and develop. So really the next stage is just to, to grow. What about your relationship with your families and the impact that the business has upon them and also the dynamic between the two of you? So I feel like... Joan has been my my wife along this journey for 12 years. So we're incredibly lucky that we still work together and get on, which I think always comes back to that passion, the purpose and the work ethic that we talked about and the fact that we actually genuinely get on as friends. We're both mothers. We're both, so we're thinking about each other. We're thinking about, you know, frame, what's best for frame. We've both got husbands and then we both have two children each. So what's best for those guys? And then we both have friends. We're both sociable people. So... You know, at any one time, generally, you're not nailing one of them. Um, (laughs) Maybe more. Um, So, you know, that is difficult, that juggle. It's real. How do the husbands feel about each of you being married to someone else as well, though? You know, they totally respect what we have. Being females in business is not always easy. Again, that naivety that we spoke about earlier was probably a good thing. I think sometimes it's got a little bit harder as as we've got older and the business has grown that actually you do come up against quite a few barriers as a female in business. And I think, um, you know, I deal a lot in the property world, which is still quite old school in terms of being in meetings and you're in a meeting and they'll speak to the male rather than speak to you. You know, I definitely noticed that in the investment world when we were when we were fundraising, there was definitely some private equity that were crossed out after the initial meeting on the basis that they spoke to the advisor asking them the questions who who didn't know the answer. So they'd and the to, advisor was a man. Yeah. And the advisor was a man and would look to us. So I think, you know, our husbands are probably our biggest champions and, and they are very supportive. Um, we do work really long hours, so I think that's probably the, the backbone to why we can do what we do. What are the challenges of being women business people in the gym sector? We used to be referred to as the gym girls in a slightly derogatory way. By who? Oh, the men in the industry. (laughs) The bank manager, Transport for London. Oh, yeah, everyone called us girls. I mean, we were young, but we definitely weren't girls. I mean, I'm wondering, counterintuitively, is is there an advantage to be had? Do people underestimate you at their peril? I mean, this is my favourite thing. I think once Pip and I understood that we were going to be called the gym girls. I think we don't particularly have big egos and actually we've used it to our advantage over time because otherwise you'd just get angry. So we always just think, well, what do we want? Do we get what we want? Is that the right thing for the business? Do we get the goal? And we will get it. And what would be your best advice to entrepreneurs who are starting out, who are Pip and Joan 12 years ago? I'd say find your Joan. 
because there's absolutely <laughs> no way that I would have done this and that Frame would exist if it hadn't been for the fact that we had each other, both to push each other through when the times were hard, because there's definitely been a few of them, someone who can be your cheerleader, but also someone who has complementary skills because you can't do everything yourself. So having the two of us has made it possible to achieve way more than if I'd been there alone. We've been fortunate that we've got each other and we've had friends who've gone into partnerships that haven't worked. I think the first time you do anything is really hard, but every time after that it becomes easier. So like you kind of have to rip that plaster off and, and, and try it because, you know, that's the only way you're going to learn and the only way you're going to get better and ask people for ask people for advice along the way. From day one to now, we still know what we're trying to achieve. And obviously the journey's not been like straight line, but we've always been striving for that same thing. If at any point you don't know what that is that you're aiming for, I think things can get lost and get quite messy. So if you're not really sure why you're doing it, maybe you need to sort of work that out before you get going, because it will make it a lot easier. Mm. So keep the end in sight at all yeah. times. Find your target and aim exactly. for it. Pip Black and Jane Murphy, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.